Let's open our Bibles again together. First Corinthians chapter 3. As we continue to make our way little by little through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians 3.10 and read down through verse 17 today. If you were here last week, then perhaps you remember how our passage ended last week in verse 9. We are God's fellow workers, the Apostle says. You are God's field, God's building. And so this idea of God's workers building God's building is what the Apostle Paul turns to next. The building of the church, our role in that, the implications of that, that's what he addresses here. 1 Corinthians 3, picking up in verse 10. Brethren, let's remember this is God's word. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled Master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only is through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray again. Father, again, we stop and we ask, Lord, as we approach your word, Father, that you would speak to us the words of life. We know that these things have been written down for our instruction. We pray then, Lord, that you would keep us, that you would strengthen us, that you would instruct us. Lord, in the inner man, in the inner being of our soul, in our hearts, Lord, that you would do this by the Holy Spirit, that you may be loved and served and adored. Father, we love you and we are hungry for your word. We are hungry for Jesus Christ. Feed us, we pray. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, over the past six weeks or so, as we've made our way through these early portions of 1 Corinthians, We've considered many times how the word of the cross is, is absolutely central to the life of the church. We've considered, for example, hearing Paul say that I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We've considered how all the preaching and teaching and ministry in the church is to center on the gospel, the person and work of Christ. We've considered as well at great length that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It doesn't matter how much the world might laugh and scoff at the gospel. It doesn't even matter how even some so-called Christians, under the guise of so-called wisdom, want to kind of put the gospel on the back burner to pursue bigger and better things in the Christian life. 
At the end of the day, it's the word of the cross alone that ultimately saves and that ultimately sanctifies God's people. We've considered this again and again. We've considered how, man, isn't this a, a message that we really that need to hear in our day? Isn't this a message that the churches here in America really need to hear in our day? We, all around us, we see seeker-sensitive churches. We see politically active churches that are very socially minded. We see legalistic churches, fundamentalist churches. We see antinomian churches. We see churches that are entirely devoid of sound doctrine. We see churches built around personalities, built around programs, built around demographics, built around principles of self-improvement, built around producing an amazing worship experience to help you connect with God. We see this all around us and all along as we've worked our way through these chapters, we have kind of expressed our desire by the grace of God, of course, is to avoid these kind of excesses. That we might have a Christ-centered church. That we might have a gospel-centered church here at CRBC. That's been our endeavor. That's been our desire. That's been our hope as we work through these chapters. But, but after hearing this for so many weeks, you might have been thinking really all along, what does this really have to do with me, the average layperson in the pew? I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. Maybe you're not even a church leader of any sort. And you might think, okay, well... I guess I have a responsibility, particularly for me and my family, to join a church that is Christ-centered. But, but other than that, isn't this really just the pastor's job? The church leader's job to put the emphasis on Christ? To preach and teach Christ? Is it the work of the ministry really their work alone? Furthermore, you might be thinking here as well, well, a Christ-centered ministry is certainly the best way to go, but is it really that big of a deal at the end of the day? As long as the gospel is present somewhere in a congregation, maybe they don't have everything perfect, we don't either. But who are we to say that a church must look like this and not this? Don't these other churches do a lot of good? Well, well these are questions that this passage takes up. These are questions that the Apostle Paul addresses today, and we will see that yes, without a doubt, this section directly speaks to ministers and leaders and preachers and their job in the ministry. Formally speaking, their proper role and function in the church. Absolutely. But at the same time though, even though ministers are directed are addressed primarily, it's also clear that the congregation is addressed secondarily. It's also clear that the duty to ensure a Christ-centered congregation is a responsibility of us all. We all play a particular role in this. And not only do we all play an important role in forming a Christ-centered congregation, but here Paul kind of pulls back the veil a little bit, and he shows us the importance of it in light of eternity. He shows us the ramifications of this. The implications of this. 
And in this sense today, we see both a warning and an encouragement from this chapter, from this passage. We see a warning that if we are not careful in how we pursue our commission as a church, the day of judgment could bring loss. But there's also an encouragement that if we are faithful in how we pursue the commission of the church, how we build the church, the things that we endeavor as a church, the day of judgment will bring reward. And not only this, but even in the present, we will enjoy the living, abiding presence of God dwelling in our midst. So at the end of the day, that's the emphasis here. God dwells among you. This is to serve as a warning and this is to serve as an encouragement to pursue and cultivate a congregation and a ministry that is Christ-centered for the glory of God and the greatness and goodness of His name. That's what we see here this morning. And to break this down, um, it falls very naturally into three different sections. So we'll consider three points. We see here this morning the cornerstone of Christ. We see construction with care. And we see consecration of community. I really outdid myself with the alliteration this morning. Cornerstone of Christ. uh, Construction with care. And consecration of community. Let's think about how Paul starts. By talking about the foundation of the building. The cornerstone which is Christ. Look again at verse 10. He says here, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So, thus, the implication, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Again, Paul is continuing a thought from verse 9. Ministers are God's fellow workers. The church is God's building. And he serves then to develop this metaphor. He puts this picture in our mind of a building. And he wants us to think about the construction of a building. Right? And this analogy, this metaphor helps kind of put in our mind's eye exactly what the work of the ministry, the work of the church, the life of the church is all about. And as you'll see from the passage, he talks about the foundation, he talks about the building, and then he talks about the purpose of it, which is God's Spirit dwelling in our midst. But if we think about constructing a, build, constructing a building, we always have to start with the foundation. It's a very common theme in scriptures. Every building begins with laying a solid foundation. Right? If you build upon the rock, your building will stand. If you build upon sand, the wind and the waves are going to take it away. Right? This idea of the foundation, without a solid foundation, no matter what you're building, The structure itself, no matter how beautiful, no matter how uh, ornate, no matter how amazing and helpful and glorious your building is, if you don't have a solid foundation, everything is faulty, everything is unstable. So you have this foundation, but then you have builders, the workers who come along and then build on it. Think about just the building of a home. You might have some workers come and and they specialize in framing. And then when they're done, maybe you have the roofers and then those who hang the drywall. And then you might have the electricians come in and the plumbers come in and the decorators come in and all 
all of these, the, crafts, the craftsmen come in. And this is the picture here that Paul's painting. The church as a building, and it's God's building. And the foundation is Jesus Christ. The planning of a church, Paul says, I came and I laid that foundation, Christ and Him crucified. And then Apollos and others came, and now they're starting to build upon this building. Some of them, these workers, they're gifted in one craft, while another worker might be gifted in another craft. Some of them play a very visible role in the construction, while others may work behind the scenes. Some of them might come and work for years and years and years, but since the building of Christ's church will continue until the very end, eventually someone else is going to need to come in and take up his job if the work is going to continue. So that's what Paul is saying. I came, then Apollos came, but all of this is God's work. All of this is God's house. It's his building, not ours. And this is important when we think about Paul's point is like a skilled master builder. He wants us to be a skilled master builder in the same way. Actually, uh, the word is uh, used for uh, translated skilled is actually the word wise. And this is important, I think, if you think about the first three chapters so far. Corinthians were infatuated with wisdom. Remember? What they thought was true wisdom. It was in Greek thought. It was in rhetoric. It was in showmanship. It was in personalities. And all along, Paul has said, well, well, you, you've, you've left off the gospel. You, you now count it as boring or as simple or as ordinary. You've missed the fact that it's the most profound wisdom of all. And you're chasing wisdom according to what the world thinks is wisdom. So, so what he's saying is, don't you see like a, a wise master builder, true wisdom is found in Christ and Him crucified? Don't you see that the, the life, the solid foundation that supports the very life of everything in the church is the preaching and teaching and emphasis on Christ and Him crucified? But you see that everything in the building is connected to the foundation in some sense. Everything comes back to Christ and Him crucified. Don't you see that this is not your commission? It's not your building. He says, according to the grace of God given to me. I haven't gone my own way. I haven't done my own thing. I'm a servant in God's house. By the grace of God, for the work of God. So he's saying all these things, which he's already said before, right? We don't need to recap all of that or repeat all of that. But he's saying it again. He's saying, I need to warn you. I need to warn you about the direction you're heading because you've begun to depart from this foundation. You've begun to leave off the cornerstone of Christ. The Corinthians had begun to try to build a church to pursue ministry, to pursue the Christian life according to their own ideas of wisdom, their own ideas of what's helpful and what isn't, their own ideas of what they wanted the church to be, what they saw the church to be. And they'd forgotten how Christ is central to it all. So Paul says, then following up in verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, that is Jesus Christ. 
That's the only foundation if, if this is to be a church. That's what Jesus said, remember? Upon this rock, the rock of Peter's confession. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are Lord. Jesus says, upon this reality, this confession, this faith, this, this person and work of myself, I will build my church. You can't lay another foundation other than Christ and Him crucified. If there is another foundation, you don't have a church. Doesn't matter what a church may claim to believe. They may give lip service to the name of Jesus. They may act as though they love and follow Jesus. But if they are pursuing the wisdom of the world, if the message of Christ crucified isn't central in their midst, if they are torn and divided in arguing over personalities and personal preferences, they've left the foundation. So what's the point here for us particularly? A source of unity in the church is Christ and Him crucified. The only source of unity in the church. That's why here at CRBC we emphasize doctrine. We emphasize truth. Truth is our source of unity. It's not that we all live near Lookout Mountain. It's not that we're all in similar phases of life. It's not that we all have similar ideas on the Christian life. Sometimes we have very different ideas when it comes to particulars. It's not that we're all in the same economic bracket or the same race or the same um, um, life stage. It's not that we all like the same music. It's not that this or that, all these external, our source of unity, the only thing that holds us together ultimately is the truth. Christ in Him crucified. And brethren, you can see this all around us. Have you seen churches that they have a, a dynamic pastor and maybe he retires or maybe he steps down or maybe he disqualifies himself and the church kind of like falls apart? Haven't we seen churches as well that, you know, they argue over things like a building program or how to spend their money or what ministry, ministry to pursue and, and the church falls apart? They split? Haven't we seen churches that, that, that devolve into, into factions and, and they gossip and there's this preference of leaders that, that spits one against another and, and they fall apart? This building actually is the result of a church, the, the Baptist church that was here for decades, arguing over petty things and eventually falling apart. These are signs that the, fault, the foundation is faulty. Paul is warning them. He's warning us. When you depart from the centrality of Christ and Him crucified, when you depart from the mind of Christ, which is the living out of Christ and Him crucified in humility, in love, in service, in unity, you're heading off the reservation. And if you don't correct course, it's all going to come tumbling down. That's what it means that Christ is the cornerstone. But we need to think more about this. He goes on. This isn't just the only point. That's really recapping what he's already said. Uh, sorry to inform you of that. We're 20 minutes in, and uh, it's all recap. But we need to continue. Secondly, we see construction with care. Construction with care. We're talking about building the house now. Look at um, um, 
verse 12 and 13. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So now we're in the language of building the church, constructing a dwelling place. It's on the foundation, so it's on a right foundation. We're talking about true churches here. Christ is the foundation. But now we think about the work of the ministry. And before we actually delve into this, you do need to know that this passage um, has been heavily abused and misunderstood down through church history. Roman Catholics point to this passage as referring to the doctrine, the fictional doctrine of purgatory. Um, others use it in debate eternal security, that we can lose our salvation. Others see that it's talking about sanctification. Well, you better build your Christian life or everything's going to be burned up. None of those things are in view, though, at all. None of those things really capture Paul's point. Simply put, he's just talking about the building of the church. Not the individual Christian, not sanctification, certainly not purgatory, not even eternal salvation. He's just talking about building the church and whether our work in the church will last. And that's what I mean with construction, with care. Are we being careful as a wise, skillful worker to pursue the building of Christ's church, the fulfilling of the Great Commission as God, attended, God intended? So he gives this metaphor here of these materials, and he, he lists six of them. Um, there's a lot of speculation as why these six, what do they refer to? I, I don't think they refer to anything important. Um, it is an allusion to Solomon's temple. Uh, the building of the Old Testament temple, uh, gold, silver, and precious stones were used. And uh, Israel was commanded to bring your very best for the building of God's house. Uh, but even then, that's just a simple allusion to help make his point. Um, the significance of the building materials, the only significance, is that the first three are non-combustible. Fire doesn't destroy gold, silver, or precious stones. But the last three, wood, hay, and straw, are easily consumed in the flame. Paul is just saying, look, a day of fire, a day of testing is coming. And it's not coming to test you personally. That's one way this passage makes no sense um, in light of the fictional doctrine of purgatory. This isn't the burning of the person. He's talking about the works that are done in the church. On the last day, whatever work you do as a church will be exposed for what it truly is. In our labors to preach and teach and evangelize and disciple and to train the children in our midst and to welcome and love one another all of the work we do to try to fulfill the Great Commission. Everything that every single member plays some sort of role in one way or the other. Will that work endure? Or will it all be for naught? Have we used the elements of self-interest, self-gain, 
Are we here in this body for selfish reasons? Getting what we want out of church. Does the church meet my needs? Does the church give me the the ministries and the attention that I want? Do I get the recognition that I deserve? Do I prosper in this congregation? Does it connect me with, with people and places that are advantageous for me in life? Are you here for applause? Are you here for your own self-fulfillment? What we pursue in life, uh, within the life of the church is it centered on the Gospel? Is it centered on the ministry of the Gospel? Is it centered on the living out of the mind of Christ? Servant-hearted, loving, caring, peaceable, forgiving, gentle, patient, self-controlled. Paul's saying, you may be able to fool people right now. And you may be able to build a glorious looking building. But whatever motive you have, ultimately, it's going to be exposed at the last day. Whatever is ambiguous now will become open and manifest to everyone at the last day. Paul's warning the church. He's saying you need to abandon your present fascination with the pursuit of self-interest and the pursuit of the world because the fire of testing is coming. The fire of testing is going to expose the church that you've built in like a, a wildfire. You know, back then or in that, in that climate, it was more like Southern California where wildfires were very, very dangerous. And they swept through and they were uncontrollable and they would burn building upon building, you know, at the snap of a finger. And he's saying, a wildfire, the day of judgment, it's going to sweep the land and any building that is not built on sound doctrine, any building that isn't centered upon Christ and Him crucified, any building that doesn't doesn't cultivate the mind of Christ exemplified, it's going to burn. It's going to be like the, the big bad wolf who huffs and puffs. He blows the house down. It's built with wood, hay, and straw. It's not going to survive. And yet, what does it mean for the worker in 14 and 15? He says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only is through fire. Again, I've got to mention this because of the doctrine of fictional doctrine of purgatory. The picture here is of a worker who's constructing a very, you know, shoddy building, and um, a flame comes through, a wildfire comes through. He's in great danger, um, but at the last moment, he's plucked out of the building, and he's, you know, saved by the skin of his teeth. He's saved with only the clothes on his back. Paul is making it clear. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about the work in the church. He's not talking about justification. He's not talking about sanctification. He's certainly not talking about purgatory. Um, I mean, one reason is because the fire comes at the day, the day of judgment, um, not at the end of one's life, as the doctrine of purgatory says. He's talking about the church. If we're not careful how we construct, if we're not careful with our conduct in the church, Everything we do in the church could be destroyed. Even though we ourselves would still be saved in the end. 
Some of you may be familiar with Charles Finney. Um, I had to read large portions of his systematic theology in seminary, and let me tell you, that was an experience. Um, He was a 19th century revivalist and leader of the Second Great Awakening. Just a history note here, the First Great Awakening in America was great. The Second Great Awakening was horrible. And a lot of really bad things. Everything we see bad about the church culture nowadays can pretty much be traced back to the Second Great Awakening. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian who came up with new measures. And he departed from the confession of faith. He departed from all of the church norms in that day. Uh, And he formed what was called new measures. And these were very emotionally charged methods for pressuring people to give their life to Christ. Uh, The altar call is one example. That's something that Finney invented. That's what Finney came up with. Calling people at the end of the service, playing emotional music, or having very emotional, urgent pleas and, and threats of God's judgment. Come forward and be saved today. Come forward and kneel at the altar, the anxious bench, as he called it, and you will be saved. And that, that all started with Finney. And he had a huge following. He built a, a massive movement. Thousands, tens and tens of thousands of people were supposedly converted under his, his ministry. He was the original tent revivalist, and he would go city to city, and it just swept the nation. He was the, the Billy Graham on steroids of that generation. It's interesting, though, at the end of his life, on his deathbed, he lamented. He lamented that nearly all of his converts had abandoned Christ after only a few weeks. He himself acknowledged that. All of his work, all of his labor, all done in Christ's name, burned up. Nothing. Sometimes the work burns right before our eyes. Like I mentioned earlier, churches that fall apart. Churches that split. Churches that commit doctrinal suicide. The the mainline churches of our day that aren't even true churches anymore. Sometimes it happens right before us. Sometimes this fire intrudes into this present age and and, and what was hidden is then revealed and what seemed deep is exposed as being really shallow and what seemed that, that brought great excitement and seemed to be a movement of God proves to be nothing but a fad. Sometimes we we get a glimpse of that now, but Paul's point is that it doesn't matter. Eventually, eventually we'll all get a glimpse of it. A true glimpse of it. But then we need to be careful just because a church seems to be successful, it seems to be growing, it seems to be vibrant, it's drawing people, it excites people, people seem to be growing in their faith. We must be careful. Don't just assume that what is successful in our eyes is successful in God's eyes. We don't judge the quality of a church based upon our limited earthly perspective. We don't judge the effectiveness of ministry based upon outward results. Maybe you've heard the the, the phrase before, oh, this church, they're obsessed with counting nickels and noses. They want to know how many people are here, how many people were baptized this year, what the offering is like, right? How many people they're doing this with or that. 
Everything must come back to Christ and Him crucified. That is the ultimate criteria of whether a church is faithful or not. The church may be a handful of people, while the church next door is tens of thousands. What matters is, is Christ faithfully preached and loved? Everything comes back to this. This is the only thing that truly builds up. This is the only thing that produces lasting spiritual fruit. This is the only thing that, what we all want to hear at that last day, our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Fruit that lasts. Work that lasts. So this is a call to construct with care so that we don't suffer loss. Not the loss of our souls, but the loss of every endeavor and every desire and every commission that God has given us in this age, in this church. To construct with care that we might not suffer loss so that we might receive the reward that God delights to give the faithful. So cornerstone of Christ, construction with care. And there's one last point here that really ties this all together. Consecration of community. Third and finally, consecration of community. This is the point really where every one of us is kind of brought in and now enters the picture. You could rightfully say and argue in many respects, well, the materials in the building of the church primarily falls on the leaders, the officers. They are the ones who fulfill the work of the ministry, for example. Um, and yet, it's not as though nobody else plays any sort of role in this or has any other responsibility in this. The leaders may set the direction and the tone without a doubt, but we all, we all play a role here. So what we see here, at least after talking about the foundation, talking about the construction, he's like, don't you see the purpose of all this and the ramifications that it has? Look at verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. A couple of very important grammatical notes here. The first is, is that the you in both of these verses is plural, not singular. But the word temple is singular. This passage is saying that you together, y'all, you all, are God's temple. It's not saying that you as an individual are God's temple. Although that is true in some sense. He's saying you together, the local church, the assembly of God's people, you all are the dwelling place of God. This really coincides with the second note from the, the, from the Greek here. There are two words in Greek that are translated in English as temple. Um, this one specifically, to be most specific, speaks of the sanctuary. The inner holy of holies. The place of God's dwelling. And that's where the, actually the best way to translate it. You are God's sanctuary. You are the inner room. You are the place in which God dwells. It's interesting. 
You know, growing up in fundamentalist circles, I heard a lot of talk about your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so follow all these rules. I was often told, don't drink, don't smoke, don't get tattoos, all of those things, right? That was the emphasis. That was what was hammered into my head. Uh, I think many of us can say we've experienced the same thing. I never remember hearing that the gathering of God's people was the Holy of Holies. And I certainly never remember hearing, this is the temple, therefore this has major implications on your view of the church. That's what Paul is saying here. Let me say as well, the doctrine of holiness has much more to do with our corporate life than it does with our individual life. The doctrine of personal holiness has much more to do with church life than it does with how you conduct yourself at home and outside of this congregation. Because the Christian life is primarily lived in community. The law of God. Love God, love neighbor. It is our love towards one another, most specifically in the context of the church, that is the sum and substance of the Christian life. It's not that other things aren't important. It's not that how you treat your body is unimportant. It is important. Your personal holiness, it is important. But it's all to be seen through the lens, through the construct of the community of the church. Don't you know that anybody, any monk, any spiritual person, any nun, any, any holy person can remove themselves from all these outward things that defile. What does it take for someone to truly humble themselves and to love others when they don't get anything in return? Or to persevere in love when, when people uh, are difficult? And to speak kindly to one another and to forgive one another and to submit to the accountability of one another. And to serve in the church without recognition, without applause, without notice. To give yourself your time, your money, your effort, your attention for the good of others, getting nothing in return. (laughs) That takes the Spirit of God. You can't do that on your own. That takes the mind of Christ. Don't you see then, brethren, why we speak of corporate worship as the center of the Christian life? The most important aspect of church life. It's because of this verse and others like it. Don't you see why we have a very high view of membership here at CRBC? And then that requires solemn vows that you make before God. And you can't just walk away from those vows if you just get tired of them. Don't you see why, why, why Christ says when two or three are gathered, I'm there in their midst. A church rightly ordered, rightly assembled, Christ is here. 1 Corinthians 5.4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Lord Jesus is with you. Don't you see why we have our view of the Lord's Supper? That Christ is actually in the room in a way in which he's not present anywhere else in creation. Paul is reminding us, he's reminding the church of who they are. This isn't your church. 
You're not free to build it as you wish. You can't just use whatever materials you want. God dwells in your midst. And and what's also amazing about this statement is that Paul's writing in the 50s, which means the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. No wonder the gospel is such a stumbling block to the Jews. He's telling the Jews in the congregation, that's just a building. There's Ichabod, the glory is departed, written over that door. Because Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the reality of what the temple pointed to. Jesus is that fulfillment of Ezekiel chapters 40-48, through 48, this massive view of the temple where God promises to dwell with His people forever. And another reason why modern ideas that the Old Testament temple is to be rebuilt, those things lead away from Christ. And the reversal of redemptive history. Christ is the temple. Christ Himself is. More than that, the city of Corinth was filled with pagan temples as well. So this was striking language. They think their deity dwells there. The real deity dwells among us. This is one temple that stands above them all. It supersedes even the Jewish temple, and it stands above all the pagan temples. The presence of the one living and true God is in our midst. And so, if that's true, if that's true, the ramifications and implications of that. It's sacrilegious to destroy God's temple, Paul says here. How do you destroy God's temple? What does it mean when he says if anyone destroys God's temple? Well, he's clearly talking about their behavior already. And the behavior he's about to get to. The things and how they were treating one another. How do you destroy God's temple? Gossip, slander, hating one another, quarreling, sowing discord, complaining, tearing down rather than building up, clinging to your rights to trampling others in the process, looking out for number one, discrediting the ministry or its leaders, propping up personalities and preferences is more important than doctrine. Leading others astray with false worship or false doctrine or worldly wisdom. Forming factions and divisions in the body. That's how you destroy God's temple. And in the old covenant, if the sanctuary was defiled, you know what the penalty was? It was death or total excommunication or expulsion from the covenant community. The picture is Uzzah, right? The the, the ark was a symbol of God's presence. And he reached out and touched the ark to stabilize it so it wouldn't fall in the mud. But he disobeyed the Lord with with his, as R.C. Sproul famously said, he assumed that his hand was cleaner than the mud that the ark was about to fall in. And he was wrong because God struck him dead. That's the background here. Paul is saying, "This this is serious. Don't you see that you're not living according to to what you know? Don't you know? He says incredulously. Like, you know this. Why aren't you living like it? Do you not see that, that any of you, whether you're a leader or a layman, whether you are a seasoned saint or a child, do you not know that if you tear down God's church, God will tear you down? On one hand, to tear down the church is to actively work against the work of the Spirit. 
But to tear down the church also cuts you off from the Spirit's presence and the blessings that come from Him. And I think as well, the, the warning here, God will destroy him. I think that language is ultimately speaking a warning from the day of judgment. Not like the warning of the worker who escapes, but the one, when it says God will destroy him, we're talking eternal ramifications here. Brethren, this is where all of us come into play. As a worker, we may build up and our work may prove shoddy and we will be saved. But tearing down the church applies to everyone and applies to everyone equally. It doesn't just apply to pastors and leaders like building the church, we might think in that sense. But we all play a role. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we all have spiritual gifts that serve the body. We are all the presence of the, uh, uh, we all together uh, um, reside in the presence of God, uh, uh, the Spirit dwelling in the midst of His people. The question I just want to leave you with in conclusion is, yes, think about building, think about fulfilling the Great Commission, think about why you're here in this church and, and all of those things, and ensure that you are participating and building in a way that will lead to lasting spiritual fruit. But the ultimate question I think here is, How do you know whether you're building or tearing down? How do you know whether you're building faithfully or building with shoddy materials? The question really just comes down to, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will love His gospel, which is the center of it all. And you'll labor constantly to apply the gospel to everyone in every area of life. And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will love His body. You will love corporate worship because you know that Christ is here in the assembly of God's people on the Lord's day. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will love His people and you will put their interest above your own. You will give yourself to them in love and service. You will surrender your own rights and preferences for the good of the body. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will love His church and you know the reward and the blessing you get from that is that in loving the Lord Jesus Christ and loving His church, you are assured with confidence and hope and comfort and joy that He dwells in our midst and that you will receive the blessing for that of that now and you will receive the ultimate blessing of that at the last day. Christ is present when His gospel is preached. Christ is present when His name is adored and loved. Christ is present in the midst of His people when we call upon His name in faith. This changes everything about how we conduct ourselves in the local church. And I pray that God will give us all the grace to see His presence, to love Him, to know Him, and to pursue Christ and Him crucified in all things and the mind of Christ lived out in all of our relations toward one another in this body. Amen. Let's pray.